Welcome everyone to another episode of Business Ready for Sale podcast. My name's John Denton and my business is called Business Ready for Sale because that's what I do. I help business owners get their businesses ready for sale because I believe that a business that's ready for sale is well worth keeping. I think it's a good idea to build your business as though you're going to keep it forever, but you could sell it tomorrow. On these podcasts, I often get a subject matter expert in to talk about some of the things that will help you when you're thinking about how to get your business ready for sale. This particular episode is the audio from a webinar that I did with a commercial lawyer called Stephen Brown. In it, Stephen talks about the legal structures that you set up a business in. Stephen also talks about partnership agreements, buy-sell agreements, and all the kinds of agreements you need to have in place if you're involving other people in your business and to cater for unforeseen circumstances. If you want to watch a recording of the webinar to see the slides and everything as well, then you can do so. There's a link in the show notes for this podcast. So now it's over to Stephen Brown, commercial lawyer from Lynn Brown Lawyers in Morley, Western Australia. G'day, Stephen. G'day, John, and everyone online. Good to be here. Thank you, Stephen. I often go to Stephen's evening seminars and sessions that he runs, and a few months ago, I think it was now, Stephen, you ran this session on business owner agreements and talked about business structures and all the different kinds of agreements that need to be put in place. And I said to Stephen after the session, I would love you to do that as a as a webinar podcast for my market. And he agreed and here he is today. So introduce yourself, Stephen, and let's get going. Yeah, thanks very much, John. So um, I think some people online um, I know and some of you don't. So for those of you that um, that don't know me, um, I practice at a firm called Lynn and Brown. Um, I've been practicing as a lawyer for 26 years in Perth. Uh, we've got a beautiful day in Perth, so uh, hopefully you get to get out and about in a, a bit later on this afternoon. But this morning we're going to be looking at um, agreements for um, that predominantly work for SMEs. And over those 26 years as a lawyer, I've worked with a lot of small and medium enterprises. And um, we're looking at agreements that business owners should look at entering into when they're starting an enterprise. But if they haven't, at any stage, if they don't have these documents in place, um, it is a very good thing to put in place. Um, and we like to work on the adage like um, good medicine, it's done as proactive. So we look at things before a problem arises and what having these documents and proper business structures in place does for a business is it can prevent problems from happening. Um, what I know from being a lawyer for 26 years is that it is very expensive to deal with problems and issues when they arise, but it is a lot cheaper to do preventative work. So to put these documents in place in advance can prevent the problems from happening because it's very clear what the arrangements are between the parties and you look at the arrangements and go, okay, we've got this situation, our agreement says this is what we do in that situation and it can prevent, therefore, a problem from happening. But let's get into it. Okay, um, I wouldn't be a decent lawyer if I didn't have a disclaimer and all we're really saying here is that what we're going to 
um, talk about today is going to be hopefully relevant and useful for all of you, but you should get particular advice for your particular circumstances. What you'll see when we go through the presentation is that there's lots of different choices and nuances that will be relevant for different businesses in different ways. So um, while this is going to be some hopefully some great useful information for you, um, you should just make sure that it's uh, relevant to your circumstances by getting some specific advice from a, an advisor directly to you. Okay, what we're going to look at in today's presentation is really four main things. So we're going to look at the different types of business structures that are largely utilised by small and medium businesses in Australia. Um, we're going to then look at a bit of an overview of what's happening with Australian business, so what type of businesses people are using in Australia and the growth and decline of those different ones that are being utilised. Then we're going to look at co-owners agreements. Now, I call them co-owners agreements because really this covers the different types of structures. So you can have a partnership agreement, you could have a shareholders agreement if you've got a company, you could have a unit holders agreement if you're operating through a unit trust. But all of them largely um, do the same thing. Um, different set of rules apply for each one, which we'll look at as we go through the presentation. And then we're going to look at how um, particularly we deal with death, total permanent disability or trauma events that can prevent business owners from being able to continue operating their business. I can see someone's asking about the slides. I think they will be available later, won't they, John? Yeah, the recording will be available and we can make the slides available for sure. Yeah, excellent. Okay. The business structures that are available for Australian business owners. Now, what we're what I'm going to do as we go through the, the different varieties of business structure is we're going to look at the pros and cons or the good and the bad of each of these different ones. And no one is perfectly, um, has everything perfect. They all have some good aspects and um, some aspects that um, may not be so good. So with a sole proprietor, this is the simplest and the cheapest way to enter into a business. Um, it is very quick. Um, if you're earning under $75,000 in a financial year, you don't even have to get an ABN. If you're earning over that, you'll need to go and register and get an ABN. Otherwise, you really um, will just need to register a business name and you're up and away and you're operating the business. Um, depending on the type of business, you may need to get a licence or some sort of approval. Um, if you're operating it out of home, you may need to check with your local government that you're allowed to operate that type of business from home and that your premises is approved to do so. But let's look at an example of someone, say, that's keeping some bees at home and decides that they're going to have enough of them to bottle some of that honey and, um, and, and sell it and they go online and they start selling it. They're only selling about $20,000, $30,000 of it a year. So it's quick, it's easy. Um, but what we do know then, the bad sides of it is that um, they're going to be taxed at um, the, the normal marginal rate. So say they had a job out there and they were earning $100,000 in the, the, the full-time job they were doing. The $20,000 is just going to get tacked onto the top of that and it's going to get taxed um, as if they were earning you know, $120,000, so that tax bracket. So it's not a great structure for taxing because you don't get the benefits that you can get from companies and trust structures in getting lower tax rates at a, um, at a quicker point of time. 
it's not great for succession planning because it is just you that's operating that and you don't have any method of passing that except for through your will um, on to someone else. So uh, you don't have a good plan there to succession plan it onto someone else. And one of the main ones is uh, protection there that it's bad for him so that if this honey operator sold someone some bad honey and they sued them because they got poisoned by it, then um, they their personal assets are on the line then. So the home that they own, the car that they own, any, their money in the bank account could all become subject of a, if they get a judgment against them, of being pursued and taken off them. Um, so uh, it's not great for protecting your assets by operating as a sole proprietor. But often we see people doing this when they're just starting something up um, and it can be all right if it's a little thing, but what you have to be really careful of is sometimes if you're good at business, little things very quickly become good and big things and they grow quickly and you could then face certain tax and duty issues if you try to move that business into another structure. So if there is the possibility of it becoming more effective, it is a very good idea to use a different structure from the start. So let's look at some of the other structures. Okay, the next one we're looking at is partnership. So the good things about a partnership, again, is it's pretty um, quick to set up. So you really, you should have a partnership agreement, but you don't legally have to have a partnership agreement. Um, and therefore, you could just start trading again by having a business name. If you're over set, ain't going to own over $75,000 in the year, you should get yourself an ABN or if you want to be able to claim your GST back, um, that you're paying for purchases, you should get um, an ABN. So um, very quickly, you can be operating. Again, not great for tax because the individual partners are, again, their share of the partnership profit is taxed at, at the individual tax rates, so a lot higher than the benefits you can get if you've got a corporate structure. Not great for protection because, again, your personal assets are on the line. There's no... no um, a partnership at law is not considered a legal entity. So it's actually the individuals that are operating the partnership that are the legal entities. So they're the ones that would be sued or would be liable for any claim against the business um, and their personal assets, so homes, vehicles, monies in banks, anything they own personally um, is going to be at risk. The last point that um, makes this one um, more difficult to deal with is there is in each state legislation in the form of a partnership act that you have to comply with. And so you have to understand the regulations and requirements that come with a partnership act um, to understand fully how the rules operate to operate this type of business structure. So just another thing that you have to understand. The next one we look at is company, and this is most businesses in Australia is the largest um, type used. Um, and Sorry. Stephen, can we just go back to the partnership thing? Yeah. With with the succession and um, like because it is a partnership thing and it's a, a personal thing as well, there's um, uh, wills and things come into that as well if something yeah, happens to one yeah. of the partners. Yeah, definitely. So um, the way in which your interest in the partnership passes is either um, your through your will because it's a personal asset that you own or 
Um, if you have a partnership agreement, so one of these types of co-owners agreements we're going to talk about later in the presentation, that may dictate what happens with your partnership interest uh, when you die. But, um, yeah, not not necess- without a co-owners agreement, um, it can be a difficult situation because, um, say, if I died and my will left everything to my wife, my wife's not a lawyer, she suddenly becomes a partner of a law firm um, and she's got no experience of operating that, my business partners aren't going to be very happy because um, they've all of a sudden got a partner who know nothing about running a business of this nature and my wife's probably not going to be very happy because all of a sudden she's got to try and learn how to run a law firm or sell it um, and it's going to be of a diminished value because it doesn't have my knowledge and skill to back um, the, the transaction. So um, it doesn't work well for either party usually, John. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, that's partnerships. Yeah, Okay, let's let's look at companies. So the the, the really good thing about companies is um, we they, they're great for protection. So um, there is something that um, is known as the corporate veil, which largely means that if you have a company and the company does something wrong, the people that your customers or your suppliers will sue your company, not the individual directors and shareholders of that company. Um, there are some circumstances in which that corporate veil can be looked behind. Um, it can't be looked behind to the shareholders, but it can be looked behind to the directors. And what I mean by that is there's certain times in which the directors can be personally liable for the company. For example, um, some types of tax and superannuation that's owed to staff. So PAYG tax, so the tax that's need to be paid on the um, what you're paying for your staff wages, directors can be personally liable for. Um, the superannuation personally liable for. If a company continues to trade when it's insolvent, so if the company can't pay its debts as and when they fall due, and it continues to trade, debts that are incurred after that date, the directors can be personally liable for. But other than that, it it provides great protection. So it does provide a lot better protection than any of the other structures we've looked for. So company tax rate is 27.5%, so um, a lot less than what the individual tax rates are. So um, you will be taxed a lot less um, if you operate your business through a company. And lastly, one of the really positive points is that they are investor-friendly in so far as you can have people buy into a company and easily transact the shares. You can create new shares um, in it. Um, You can create extra shares. You can pass shares from one investor to another investor very easily. Um, There's no duty payable on the transfer of shares. It can be capital gains tax can be assessable on it, um, but uh, it is very easy to have people invest and investors to change and move in and out of this type of structure, which is very difficult with um, the other types of structures we've looked at. So if you're looking at running a business where you know you're going to need to raise significant capital to do so and you'll want to do that by having passive investors in the business, um, a company is a really good structure to do that through. Some of the negative yeah. aspects of it um, is that 
it's got um, a lot more setup costs um, and a lot more running costs um, involved with it. You'll have to have ASIC registration of it um, and pay annual ASIC fees um, and some of the obligations in that regard um, are a little bit more onerous. You will have to deal with the Corporations Act. So the Corporations Act is a piece of federal legislation that governs uh, rules and regulations about the operating of all companies. Um, and then duties to shareholders. So you have duties both through the Corporations Act and at common law to the shareholders, which the directors and officers of the company need to ensure that the company satisfies. And I know Grant has just picked me up there. Yeah, I think I did say 27.5, but you're right, Grant, that 25% is now the corporate tax rate. So even better and even more reasons now to be operating um, through a company than um, a partnership or a um, sole proprietor structure. Okay, um, let's look at the next one. So, Stephen, mm. what's involved in going from being a sole trader or a partnership into a company? Yeah, okay. So you're operating at one and you want to move. Um, so you would you would need to do effectively an arm's length transaction. So um, the the assets of the partnership or the sole proprietor need to be moved into a corporate structure. We did it as a as a law firm um, many years ago. So you didn't used to be able to operate a law firm as as a company, and so we used to trade as a partnership, as pretty much all law firms did. And we then um, moved it over into a corporate structure. So um, luckily, as a law firm, you don't own a lot of assets. You own some computers, some desks, some photocopiers, um, not, a, not a lot otherwise. So there wasn't a lot of assets. There's a question about goodwill um, that you'll need to deal with. So those, those assets and the goodwill are dutiable assets if you move them from one structure to another. Um, and but otherwise you just you, you you set up a company, John, and you effectively do a, a transaction where you you know it's like uh, I suppose selling it to an independent party. At law, we see a company like a, a, another person, um, so it would be like just a, a, a transaction of that nature. So not not highly complex. You just have to be careful of your um, your duty and tax issues around it, and and try to structure it to avoid those as much as possible. Okay, great. Thank you. Okay. Um, the, the last structure we're going to look at is, is trust, and we've got two types up there um, you'll see. One, a unit trust, and the other a discretionary trust. Discretionary trust is colloquially known in Australia as a, as a family trust, um, and, but let's start with the, the, the unit trust. So a unit trust is, um, is similar to a company in that you've got defined ownership. So you'll issue so many units in the, in the trust, but it'll be governed by a deed that creates the trust, and that'll be effectively the rules of the uh, rules that the trust operates by. Um, and you usually will have the trustee as a company. Um, and if you set it up as a, with it as a company, then um, you'll get good protection it is investor friendly because you can trade the units in it quite easily. You can issue new units in it um, so long as your deed allows you to do that and it'll have certain rules about how you do that. 
Um, and again, um, it will have um, the the benefit if you've got a corporate trustee of having the the tax minimisation that comes with that. The negative aspects is that if you've got a corporate trustee, um, then you'll deal to deal with the Corporations Act. Again, you had the setup and the running costs, um, and you'll have obligations to your unit holders. Um, that are set out under the terms of your deed. So one of the things that's um, complicated with this type of structure is that you have a document that is tailored to, to suit your business. It's called a, a trust deed that governs how it operates. Um, and you may also need, if you've got a company trustee, you, you'll need to have the understanding of how that works in conjunction with your trust. What we often find is the business owners that have this type of structure struggle to understand um, how it all works and they think they're operating the business through a company but they're actually operating it through a trust. Um, but it, it's got a lot of benefits but it takes um, a bit of time to sit down usually with your accountant or your lawyer to really understand how it is that you're operating um, that structure. It gets interesting when it comes to selling that type of business as well. Yeah, yeah, it does. Um, and what we sometimes find with these is that if it's been operating for a while and has had a, a few different people involved in owning it, is that sometimes the shareholding in the corporate trustee and the, the unit holding haven't been, haven't been kept pace. Um, and uh, the directorships of the companies sometimes aren't being updated properly. So there's a little bit more going on there. You're juggling more that you need to keep on top of. Um, a good accountant will help you to do that, um, but there there is a bit, and we often find when we come in and we're be involved with the sale of some units or the sale of the whole business um, that is operating under this structure that it needs a bit of a tidy up before we can actually start dealing with the third party for the sale to happen. Yeah, it just adds more uh, interest into the process, I guess. Yeah. And look, and I, and I think that's that, that's part of, I, I suppose, the, the, the nuance here is that the more complex it is, often you get benefits from that, but the benefits that you're acquiring often create complexity. Um, so you can have the benefits, but you often can't have the benefits without a bit of added complexity to a structure. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then the, the, the last one there, a discretionary trust. Um, so this otherwise known as a family trust, we often see this used as an investment vehicle for families, and that's why it's known as a family trust. Um, and you may also see a structure like what we have here is that we operate through a company, but my shares in this company are owned by a discretionary trust. Um, they're really good for tax because what happens is each year your um, accountant will sit down with you and work out we've got this massive the, the why, why it's discretionary is because there's a discretion as to who is each year the beneficiaries of that trust. You have a large pool of potential beneficiaries. So in my circumstance, myself, my wife, and my two sons, 
and to any other relative of ours, any company that we want to create, any charity that we want to have involved, any other trust that we've got ownership of can all be potential beneficiaries of this. So we, the accountant sits down and works out who's earned what each year and we move um, proceeds into different people to try and minimise tax. Now, um, the ATO have just given um, a different view of Section 100A of the Tax Act, which makes it a little bit more difficult um, to do this in some circumstances. Um, but there's a lot of inventive accountants and lawyers out there that are working ways around this. And it's only, um, it is not yet law. So the tax department are currently funding a couple of test cases to see if their new interpretation of Section 100A uh, works. But what it does do is it decreases the circumstances if the ATO's view of this section of the Act is right. It decreases the circumstances in which sometimes you might be able to distribute to adult children. There's problems with um, minor children, so you can't do that anyway. Um, be, well, you can do it, but they go to the top tax bracket after the first $480. So the way it works with children is that children's personal exertions are under 18. If it's personal exertion, so they've got a part-time job and they're earning, they normal tax rules apply. But if they're getting income from non-personal exertion, then um, they go to a high, the, the top tax bracket after the first $400. Odd. So, um, and the circumstances then now in which you could distribute, normally once they turn 18, you start distributing a whole lot to them and getting at the low tax rates. Um, that's now um, going to be a bit more difficult to do. Um, it can have good protection if you've got a corporate trustee, um, again. Um, some of the bad things of discretionary trusts are is they're really bad for succession planning because there's no defined ownership of the asset. Um, when someone dies, um, if, say, they own two investment properties in a discretionary trust, their will cannot dictate what happens with those assets because they don't own them. The discretionary trust owns them. Um, and therefore, we've got to look at who are the appointers of that trust, which are the people that choose who the trustee is, and they the trustee chooses who gets what assets for it. So we've got to make it a little bit more difficult and nuanced to um, to deal with the succession planning Decision-making can be difficult with them because if it's a larger family group, so brothers and sisters that are um, all potential beneficiaries, so say the parents owned assets and passed them to the children through when the parents died, through the children becoming the appointers and controllers of the trust and deciding how the trust is to operate and work is not such um, a great thing. Um it it's, makes you wonder if there's, I guess the, a lot of the benefits of a trust are being removed or watered down, aren't they, by the, the government, and it becomes a whole lot more complex when you're selling the business as well. Yeah. So, you know, you've really got to ask yourself why you would do it. I see some um, business setups that are so complicated. I've, I've seen buyers walk away from deals because their accountant couldn't understand the the structures that they were set up under because you've you've got 
proprietary limited companies in there. You've got trust in there. And they're all passing money around. And it just gets so, you know, I, I, to my mind, the simpler you keep it, the better when it comes to things like succession and, and selling the business. Yeah, look, I um, completely understand that. And it probably depends a little bit, John, on the type of business and the sophistication of the business that's being operated. Um, the more the business is earning and if it's opening different um, types of, you know, if, it, if it, it's opening, you know, effectively sub-businesses that it's operating through, um, you you may want to divide up a business, say, um Say you're operating a pool chemicals business and you sell those to the public, but you then also want another line where you go and service um, people's houses and their pools and that sort of thing. You may want to keep them separate because then you don't run the risk of both of them being exposed to if there was a downturn in one of those businesses and not the other. Um, you, you can hive one off and not the other. You also, if one of them is sued and the other one, you can still operate the other one. Um, when we deal with businesses that um, are own some intellectual property, so they develop, say, some software or some technology, we always want that to be not owned by their trading company. So we have that owned by a company and it licenses that to a, their trading company that then trades with the rest of the world so they don't risk losing that um, asset. So, yes, I understand it can make it complex in sales, but... Um, often there's some good reasons why um, an accountant or a lawyer has said, let's create this structure. But sometimes there's not. And sometimes also it involves just, I think, something that you work with your customers with is that getting in, in advance very prepared for a sale because sometimes you want to clean and tidy that structure up. It might have been good for you to operate the business through but may not be a good way in which to sell it. So you may want to change that structure over a couple of years. And if you can have a couple of years, it can um, dramatically reduce what tax you may otherwise pay um, to try and tidy up a structure to get it ready for sale and make it a lot more appealing to the general public. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. It's all about the preparation. Yeah. Preparation and planning. Definitely. Um, and then... I've just got a slide up there about hybrid and I've really talked largely about that. That's where we use one of those structures and another one together. And sometimes we get the best of both worlds um, by doing that. So a corporate trustee for a unit trust or a co company as a trustee for a discretionary trust, um, having a, a company and the shares owned by that in that company by a discretionary trust, um, we also see some people operate business where it's a partnership of unit trusts um, or a partnership of discretionary trusts. So there's a lot of different varieties um, and different ones are suitable for different type of circumstances and it really therefore needs to be some particular advice for your business and the different business owners and what they are bringing to the table, maybe in their personal circumstances or how the business is going to operate, which one of those structures is going to be best for you. Hmm. All right, let's have a bit of a look here about um, the, the the current landscape in Australia and what we're seeing happening with businesses. Um, I am not an accountant, but I do love numbers and stats. So we have a bit of a look at some statistics of what's going on with Australian businesses at the moment. So 
Um, these are for the previous financial year. As John said, I did this presentation at the start of the year and that was the, the, the figures that were available and the, the figures for the last financial year hadn't come out yet in preparation for this. So um, we're going off those figures at this stage. So, um, And what we'll note with these figures is that um, Australia went through this little thing called a, um, a COVID-19 pandemic during this time. So it has had an effect um, and you might be surprised um, or you may not be surprised um, that it, it, how that effect has actually um, affected the Australian business landscape. So we did see um, an increase um, of about 4% in the number of businesses operating, and that's about 90,000 businesses um, in that year. Um, we saw about 16% um, of new businesses, so um, that's sort of 300 and 66,000-odd businesses were new businesses were created in Australia in one year. Um, and we saw an exit rate of about 12%, so about 280,000 businesses in one year ceased to exist in Australia. Um, and that number is high um, probably for the, for the exit rate because, we, you know, if you were operating um, a tourism business, you probably struggled that year if you're, um, doing things that um, people needed to get out and about and do. You probably struggled. If you're operating cafes, you struggled. So a whole lot of types of businesses that couldn't use that um, pivot quick enough, get to use that um, that word that was really um, popular a couple of years ago again there. Um, so, But also what we saw is a lot of people started working from home and went, oh, you know what, I can do this myself. I don't need to work for my boss or my company anymore. I can set up my own business and do this myself. So we did see a large number of new businesses um, get formed in Australia as well in that period. Oh. Okay, um, this gives you a bit over um, a longer period um, on the right there, a bit of a graph. Um, the the top line there shows the, the new businesses that entered. So as you can see, um, it was more businesses that were um, being created in that year than um, any um, other year on that graph. Uh, we had actually, um, you know, the the tip of the, the exits was actually in the previous financial year. So we went back a little bit above um, the other years in 2021, but not, not significantly. Um, and... But what you can see in the bottom line is the net change. So um, we got significantly more um, businesses that actually formed during the pandemic um, on a um, on a net level than we have um, for some time in Australia. Um, and then on the left there, what we can see is that the the types of businesses that we saw um, happening is that three percent increase in sole proprietors. So um, an increase of an extra 20,000 is because of this phenomenon that we saw people working from home and going, I can just do this myself um, and set themselves up as a sole proprietor or had a side gig that while they were at home working, they found extra time to do because they weren't allowed to go out and about and do things and they decided that they could form, um, create a company or, I'm sorry, create a, a sole proprietor business because this side gig wasn't just a hobby, I could actually make a bit of money out of it and set up as a sole proprietor. And it was just a, a, a smaller smaller gig. So um, we 
continue to see a decrease in partnerships. It is um, not seen as a favourable way um, for many reasons and some of which I've, I've talked about um, earlier today. And then, um, yeah, that that significant increase there in sole proprietors of, of, of um, that, sorry, entry rate of sole proprietors of, of 20%, so 140,000 new sole proprietor businesses created in Australia um, was significant and it is really that COVID-19 pandemic phenomenon we saw in place. Um, that next chart just shows over a period of um, eight years, eight and a half years, the growth of um, businesses in Australia. So we see um, a really quite significant growth from about 2 million back in March 2013 to um, going to September 2021 when we're um, you know, tipping over the 2.4 million now. So um, continue um, as our population grows and um, obviously a significant growth there in the number of businesses operating in Australia. Um, last slide on the technicals there just looks at the change in that last quarter. So from the June 21 quarter to the September 21 quarter. Um, and as you can see there, um, we saw a significant growth and some of that growth happened out of the back of the eastern states coming from significant lockdowns and starting to open up and businesses in, you know, the, the cafe, the hospitality, the tourism sectors starting to actually um, become viable again. Um, and also we saw construction um, significant growth um, and property um, values start to go through the roof, which created a lot of growth in that sector of construction and property um, over that period of time. All right, um, let's talk about co-ownership agreements. So um, these are, as I said at the start, they could be a partnership agreement if you've got a partnership. It could be a shareholders agreement if you've um, got a company or it could be a unit holders agreement if you've got um, a unit trust. You can't have one of these for a discretionary trust and, of course, you can't have one for a sole proprietor because this is an agreement between two or more co-owners of an agreement, of, of a business, sorry. So um, what it does is it governs rights, obligations of the owners, um, and it defines boundaries. So, you know, you um, can't play a game of AFL without a set of rules. So the, the game flows because people know there's a set of rules and how it all operates. So what a co-owner's agreement is a set of rules for your business. Um, and it allows, therefore, for the business to flow better and to less likely to have issues um, as it progresses. And we've I've set out 11 different things there that we're going to drill down to that should be considered in your co-owner's agreement. So the first one there is decision-making. So um, how are decisions made? So sometimes a decision might be appropriate that can be made if you get 50% or more of the owners agreeing to a certain thing. But some things that are more significant, like selling new shares or raising, borrowing a million dollars from the bank, might 
you might say, well, we want a, a greater majority. We want a 75% or more majority. What often is really important with that is to know the type of business and the type of decisions that business is making and which ones are more serious than others and which one you therefore want more of the shareholders to actually be agreeing on. And also really important is what is your shareholder mix? Have you got one shareholder that owns 60% of the company and another one that owns 10, another four that own 10% um, and therefore what 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 of those shareholders do you want to have to agree to be able to do something and therefore set your percentages around that? And that percentage then may need to change if the ownership of your business structure changes um, and if the types of decisions that are being made need to um, be changed. So the document should be a fluid document and it should be something that is regularly considered and talked about um, and will be quite nuanced to the particular business that you're dealing with in, in that regard. The second one there is um, forced exits and the price paid. So if someone is um, has defaulted under one of the terms of the agreement, so they've done something fraudulent or the agreement says if you're charged, uh, if you're convicted of a criminal offence with a, a jailable term, usually of a couple of years, that might be a default under the the terms of the agreement, so you could be able to force one of the owners to exit the business. You want a system and a structure as to how that occurs. So, how is it? Um, how how are they exited? What what price is paid for their interest in it? Is there a price paid? Um, how is that price reached? Is it a valuation? Um, is it able to be put to market? Um, so, all those type of considerations should be documented. The third one there is working capital. So if there is the need to raise capital um, during the course of the operating of the business, um, a system and a defined structure of doing that, is it coming from the shareholders? If so, um, if it comes unequally, how are those loan agreements structured? What are the rights and obligations to repay those loan agreements before other obligations? All things like that should be considered. The fourth one there is dispute resolution. So if there's a dispute between the parties, how is that dispute going to be resolved? And often the best way is for this is a what I would call a trickle-down effect. So it might be that if there's a dispute, there's an obligation for the parties to um, exchange in writing or a meeting in the first week what that dispute is and have a chance to resolve it in that manner. If that doesn't resolve it, it may be that then there's a requirement for the parties to go before an independent mediator to try and mediate the resolution. If not, it may be arbitration, it may be court proceedings um, that then follow that. Um, the benefit of arbitration and that sort of what we call an alternative dispute resolution rather than just going to court is it can be a lot quicker and a lot cheaper to resolve the problem. Um, court can take a lot of time and a lot of money um, and if you can resolve the problem that in a quick and effective way that allows it to continue to trade, um, then um, that can be really highly effective. Mm. Um, the fifth one there is passive ownership. So are the business owners allowed to... Um, are they required to be operating in the business and working in the business 
or are they just passive? Are they just an investor and don't have to work in the business? Are they, if they are working in the business, are they allowed to have other business interests? Um, what the law says is you can't have another business interest that conflicts so that is in competition with the, the company um, or the business that you work for unless the other owners agree and allow you to do that. Um, and sometimes we see that occurring and so it just needs to be documented, um, but it, it's done with probably significant risk because um, even if everyone agrees to it at one point, if the one company starts to suffer because deals are getting sent to the other one, uh, that can be um, highly problematic and likely to create conflict and dispute. The next one there is dividend policy. So have some sort of policy about your dividends. Are you, um, are you declaring them um, only at the end of the year? Do you give interim dividends? How do you deal with that? Is there a rule or a basis on or a, um, you know, a, a formula on which you calculate and determine your dividends? Um, really important conversation to have with your accountants. Um, and these documents, when done well, should be done between lawyers and accountants advising you on the way. Um, and it, it should be a, a, a bit of a group conversation about the creation of them. The next one there, uh, seven, is sale to third parties. So um, when one party wants to sell and the other party wants to keep operating the business, this becomes really important. So we see in this, play, this space things like, um, you know, first right of refusal. So the other owners of the business having the first right to buy before it goes to the general public um, as a very common thing that we see in place. But then there's some issues about, well, how's that value determined? So is it that it's done on a valuation? Is it that it's done by some formula um, based around EBITDA or something of that nature and a multiplier? Is it done that the they go to the third parties and the other owners have a right to match any offer um, that a third party um, puts to the, the selling party? We also see in this space provisions um, that are often in agreements that we call drag-along and tag-along clauses. So a tag-along clause basically says usually that if there's someone with 51 or more percent ownership of the business and they want to sell, they can make all the other shareholders sell as well. So they can sell the whole business to a third party. Um, and this is often we see this where there's a significant shareholder that um, brings other people in over a period of time but wants to have the option when they want to depart to possibly maximise their gain by selling the whole business as a whole rather than only being able to sell their percentage interest because they might get better return on that basis. The other one that I talked about there was a tag-along. This sort of operates the converse. So this is where one person wants to sell, then the other owners could require them to sell on the same terms. So say I own... 30% of a company and I want to sell it and someone else owns 20% and they also then decide, no, I want to sell as well, they can make me as a 30% older negotiate the full 50% sale um, and require that if for me to be able to sell my 30%, I've also got to negotiate a deal for their 20% to also be sold. 
Um, yeah, it gets interesting when uh, you get some parties in the business that that they don't want to sell. I mean, the point you're making here, Stephen, I think is you know it's way way better to get all these things agreed up front um, than than have the dispute at the end. Yeah, when, definitely. When somebody um, wants to get out. Yeah. And, and we're often when I'm working with people um, creating these and they're setting up new companies, they often come back because I usually create a bit of a questionnaire and say, look, either get me involved in this conversation or you go speak to the other owners about these issues first and then, and then we'll have a meeting to talk about what your feedback is on those um, issues. And they often come back and say, yeah, we discovered all these things that we didn't know about each other or didn't know that this is how um, they would want to deal with the business. So um, can be, yeah, highly elucidating um, up front, which is really important. <laughs> it forces people to talk. Yes. <laughs> um, the next one there, restraints of trade, just really important that you work out if someone exits, what are their rights to compete with that company going forward? Um, often um, when they're bought out, what they what part of is being paid to them is 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 good is that goodwill so you don't want them to be able to directly compete with your company for a period of time and restraint of trade clauses are really difficult to enforce but usually where there's consideration paid because someone pays something on the basis that you're not going to um, compete with me going forward and I'm paid for that protection then they are enforceable. But the law does say that they're at first instance what we call void, so unenforceable, and it's up to the person seeking the protection to prove that it was valid in the circumstances. But usually a trade sale of a business, um, if the restraint is reasonable, um, then it will be enforceable. But usually unreasonable to prevent someone from doing something for a very long period of time that is their core skill set. So someone restraining me from being a lawyer for five years wouldn't be reasonable, but maybe someone paying me a million dollars to exit this business and say you can't do it for a couple of years, Stephen, is probably reasonable. Um, the next one there is deadlocks. So if you've got um, parties that can't agree on resolving um, certain issues that are really important for the continued operation of the business, working out a way of resolving the deadlock and we're sort of running out of time so I won't go into it in detail but I've got probably about eight different mechanisms on which that can be done and some of them are you try this and if that doesn't resolve it you try that um, but some of them are standalone um, it may trigger a sale it may trigger um, mediation it may trigger um, a buyout um, or an opportunity what they call Russian roulette each one to put in an envelope what they would be willing to buy the other one out for and whoever's got the higher price actually gets the other ones. Um, so there's a few different ways in which you can look at doing that. It's usually only for really serious issues that would prevent the business from being able to go on and operate if the party can't agree on it. Um, are the owners being paid a salary and an income? Really important there, particularly in the early days, agreeing on that up front and understanding what people's expectations and their personal needs are to get income out of the business because if that's not clear and people start drawing money out of the business, it can create significant problems for the business um, with its cash flow. And then lastly, just meetings. Um, when are you going to meet? How often? Are they by video? Are they in person? Um, 
should all be worked out and you and any good business should have the owners regularly meeting and discussing some of these things yeah um, it's all about communication yeah definitely i'm going to skip that one with um the time and it was just a bit of a case study of a, a of a bad shareholder agreement that we saw um that went wrong and sorry for the accountant in the room that was at a one that was made by accountants um, and they used a pro forma document that didn't suit the business circumstances and just lastly just a very quick look at um death tpd and trauma so Another agreement that either can be incorporated into that co-owner's agreement or sit separately. I prefer it to sit separately because it's dealing with some quite unique circumstances um, and that is where one of the owners die, has a total permanent disability or a trauma event that prevents them from working, usually we say for three to, or six months. Then what this does is it triggers a option for an event for that party's interest in the business to be transferred to the other owners. Usually it's connected to insurance policies that cover the death, total permanent disability or trauma event. Um, and basically what it does is the person who's had that event, their family get the proceeds of the insurance policy, which is effectively the purchase price, and the interest in the business passes to the other owners. Um, it allows for a smooth transition you don't need it to be backed by insurance, but it's often best because if the other owners don't have the money to buy out the other owner at the time floating around and if it's a, a valuable business, say the interest is worth a million dollars, a lot of people don't just have a million dollars floating around not expecting their business partner to die and all of a sudden um, have to, to fork out that. So insurance can be a great way of funding it. Um some people choose because they do have a whole lot of money floating around to not back it with insurance. Um, important, though, to keep it up to date with the value. So the insurance amount should be the amount that is that um, that person's interest in the business. So you need to constantly review what the value of that business is and that the insure, the amount that they're insured for matches it. Um you need also to just get some tax advice to ensure the creation doesn't create a disposal. It, if well drafted by a lawyer, it won't um, create a disposal, but we're creating effectively an event where there's an automatic transfer, so you just have to be careful of that. Um, and we have to be careful there um, about those other things there to make sure the right people are the people that are nominated to be the beneficiaries um, and that we don't trigger any capital gains tax consequences as a result of it. Um, I think that's largely it. Oh, just some extra considerations there. If you lose insurance coverage, um, that can be a problem for that um, buy-sell arrangement. If you've got loan accounts, so owners have loaned money to the company or the, the, the trust to set it up, really important that you have that properly documented with loan agreements and how that would be dealt with. Um, and sometimes also that the owners of it could be called upon to personally guarantee some trade debts or some bank debts um, or um, to personally guarantee undertakings under a lease or something of that nature. Wow. A lot of things to think about. There's a lot going on there, John. Yes. Um, 
I don't know if there's any questions that you'd saw John roll through there that we might want to address in the last yep. couple of minutes. I'll, uh, I'll read the questions out. If I'm buying a share of existing business, does the type of the existing business with business, does the type of the existing business will affect the type of business that I'll need to set up to buy the share offered to me? So I think the question is, yeah. Yeah, so yes, yes and no. So um, if you're buying shares in a company, um, you may want to buy those shares through a discretionary trust. Um, if you're buying units, the same. Um, so if you're buying into a partnership, again, I would suggest that you buy into that partnership with a with a company or a trust structure that gives you the benefits of that. So, yes, um, it can help you personally, but also then you want to look at overall that business structure once you get involved in the ownership of it, whether that's the right structure going forward for that business. Okay. And does a corporate trustee improve succession planning? Um, if that question is relating to a discretionary trust, then the answer is no. Um, no. It doesn't help because you've got this undefined ownership of assets because there's no clear owner um, under a discretionary trust structure. So it won't help your succession planning of it. It just, it can be done. It's just quite nuanced and not as watertight as we would normally like as lawyers to create a structure. But it depends on your family dynamics and who you're wanting to take ownership of it, how we go about doing that. Sure. Could you advise the pros and cons of operating a company as trustee for, for a trust trading as and a company only trading as with a separate discretionary trust? Did you get that? Mm, I, I, I think they're meaning if you've got a company and the shares are held by the discretionary trust or you've got a corporate trustee of a trust. Um, it depends on who, if you're going to have co-owners, make sure that you're, you're not using a discretionary trust. You would want it to be a corporate trustee of a unit trust. Um and then it just depends on um, how you're wanting to, to deal with that business going forward. Um, personally, I much prefer just operate as a company and have your shares owned by a different structure underneath. But there are some circumstances where unit trusts can be beneficial for certain types of business structures and sorry, types of businesses that you're operating. Yeah, so it's get, get the right advice up front, really. The, um, that's all the questions I've got here, Stephen. The, I think you were going to offer people who attended something. Yeah, so, um, so any, anyone that would like to, if they mention the magic words John Denton and they call our office, we're, um, we're offering a 15-minute free phone consult to talk about anything to do with businesses. So the only thing really that we don't deal with in businesses is we don't do employment law. So if you've got an employment law issue, you can give me a call, but I'll give you the name of another lawyer that would assist you. Um, but anything otherwise dealing with the operating of your business um, or your business structures, um, 
within the next month. If you call and mention John Denton, someone will book you in for a time to have a chat with me or one of my other lawyers in my commercial team. That's great. And if people are listening to this on podcast, the same offer provided it's before the end of the month? Yes, yes, definitely. Any Anyone that, well, so let's say, um, what are we, the 12th of August, we're, we're doing this. So up until the, the 12th of September, that, um, that offer will stand, John. Okay. And so I did put your contact details up there, but you've closed your presentation down now. So how, how can people contact you, Stephen? Yeah, so the number here um, is 0893753411. Okay, fantastic. All righty. Well, thank you very much for that. Lots of um, valuable, very valuable information. And I think the, the message always is prior preparation and planning prevents pretty poor performance. And the point you made up front about it's cheaper to engage a lawyer at the beginning uh, before you get into things rather than waiting until there's a problem is uh, it's a better way to go. Yeah, yeah, most definitely, John. That is that is one of the keys to any success of anything is prior planning, prior planning in, in what you do with the business, prior planning the, the, the legal obligations around it um, is so important for, for all business owners to just take that time before they do something to make sure they get it right and then success will flow. Okay, beautiful. And if anyone would like to get in contact with me about um, preparing their businesses ready for sale and turning their business into a saleable asset, then john at johndenton.com.au or go to the website johndenton.com.au and there's a contact form there. So thanks again, Stephen. Really appreciate it. Um, can people get copies of your slides? They're your slides. It's up to you, that one. Yeah, yeah, more than happy, um, John, for you to circulate to all those people that have registered. Um, thank you, everyone, for tuning in. Um, and, yeah, please feel free to give me a call if I can assist further. All right, fantastic. Thank you. So that was the end of the webinar with Stephen Brown, commercial lawyer from Linen Brown Lawyers in Morley, Western Australia. A lot of great information there. And particularly when you're thinking about your exit strategy, when you're thinking about how you're going to get out and sell your business, you need to make sure that you're set up in the right legal structure for what you want to do with your business. And it may be that you need to do that two or three years before you do exit the business. So my message, as always, is plan and prepare and start thinking about these things early. Now, if you would like a copy of Stephen's slides from the webinar or you would like more information, then go to the show notes for the podcast or you can go to the website johndenton.com.au and you can, through the contact form, request a copy of the slides and the link to the webinar if you wish to watch it. And finally, you can get in contact with Stephen Brown through his website, his business website, linenbrown.com.au. 
and that's L-Y-N-N-A-N-D-B-R-O-W-N, linenbrown.com.au. So thank you and look forward to talking to you on the next podcast. Bye for now.